Shalom, wonderful friends. That Nigun is from Achenu Kobet Israel. Hanatunim Betzara, Rishiv Yaha Umdim Bein Bayam, Uvein Bayabasha, Hamakom Yerachim Alehim. So uh, you might be familiar with Achenu, a song of solidarity among Am Israel, as we are in uh, dark times for the Jewish people right now. Unprecedented times. Unprecedented. I mean, it's easy to feel like, ah, we survived all the past of it. You know, we should make it through this as well. But um, it's not clear. This is different than 48, different than 67, different than 73. The existential threats are, are very real if this moves into a regional war with Iran and the like. So we continue to pray for the 199 hostages, however many are still alive. We continue to pray for the success of the IDF in protecting the Israeli civilians from Hamas terror. Of course, we pray for Palestinian civilians, um, all, all you know, all innocent people on both sides, and um, and ultimately we pray for peace in addition to the success of self-defense. So, uh, and I wish you all strength. I wish you all strength. I know if you're like me, you're very, very glued to this. If you're like me and you have family and friends and colleagues all over Israel, um, it's hard to think about anything else. And yet we continue learning because we do have to think about other things. Um, it's part of our mental health. And it's also how terror doesn't win. Terror wins if we stop engaging in joyful learning, if we stop engaging in conversation. That's how terror wins. So we have to do what we can. And we also have to keep living our lives and coming together and learning together. So it may feel like a stretch um, from what we're dealing with in the world today um, of anti-Semitism rose 1,500% over the last week, 1,500% um, attacks against Jews everywhere. Of course, we have to speak out against hate everywhere because of hate rhetoric against Muslims. There was a six-year-old Palestinian child in Chicago who was, uh, who was murdered. Um, so we have to be sure that our rhetoric is always responsible, even in these most intense times. And so it may feel uh, far afield to think about Karl Marx today, but um, all ideas are interconnected. All ideas are interconnected. And we never know what um, this type of learning can spark for us. Um, and uh, yeah, I also, in addition to welcoming our regulars, I want to welcome a new member to our Valley Beit Midrash team here, Ali DeLambo, who is our, um, uh, our great uh, leader over in Denver. So welcome, Ali. We're glad you're here with us and uh, look forward to learning with you today and, and in the future. And uh, so let's start with a little poll question before we dive into Karl Marx together. 
Who most owns a product being sold? Who most owns a product being sold? The owner of the company? The worker who helped make it? God, who most owns a product being sold? The owner of the company? The worker who helped make it? Or God? Okay, 78% say the owner of the company. 11% say the worker who helped make it. And 11% say God. Okay. As always, our poll questions are not intended to have any right answers as much as just get us thinking about complex issues. Of course, they're, they're always a little reductive, um, but just uh, to stimulate our own thinking a little bit. And part of what we're going to see here is this issue of labor and this issue of ownership uh, amidst many other issues as well. If you've also studied Karl Marx, I'll be, uh, we'll be eager to hear some of your views on some of these ideas, positive and critical, as always. Friends, is a better world created through the spiritual or the material? What is the nature of the relationship between workers and employers? Is religion really the opiate of the masses? With Karl Marx, we're dealing with, without a doubt, one of the most influential Jews in history. Norman Lebrecht, in his book, Genius and Anxiety, How Jews Changed the World, wrote, Folk wisdom has it that five Jews wrote the rules of society. Moses said, the law is everything. Jesus said, love is everything. Marx said, money is everything. Freud said, sex is everything. Einstein said, everything is relative. <laughs> so I love that. Of course, that kind of simplifies uh, these, these five people. But um, those are five influential Jews throughout history. And um, we're, we're going to get to Freud. Uh, we'll probably get to Einstein as well. Uh, we're not going to get to Jesus. Although maybe Jesus should be this. Was Jesus a philosopher? Okay, well, we'll bracket that. <laughs> not a philosopher in the classical sense, but certainly worthy of, uh, of study uh, and engagement. And certainly a fine human being, uh, to say the least. We could, of course, spend hours on end ironing out the nuances of that quote. But it remains true that Marx was one of the most important Jewish thinkers ever in part because Marx intended to be not just a philosopher, but a revolutionary. Now, to be sure, we say revolutionary, you think a street activist, you think someone starting a, a rally or starting a war. Um, Marx was an armchair philosopher. I mean, yeah, he was in some in ways engaged with people, but really he's a thinker in the chair. He's not in the streets. Uh, and that, that can be misunderstood about him a little bit. Marx was born in Germany in 1818 to assimilated Jewish parents. His mother's father was even a rabbi. However, they converted to Christianity before he was born. Marx based his philosophy on a notion of class conflict, laying the foundation for the emergence of communism. With fellow German Frederick Engels, Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. All of history, they argued there, was really about the struggle between the rich and the poor. As a student of history, Marx believed we could use trends to assess what future societies would look like. So too in the social sciences, Marx considered the founder of a critical method that rejects speculative ideology in favor of a colder, more clinical approach. While Marx had little to do with religious Judaism, it would not be wrong to call him a secular messianist. That might be a weird phrase to some, maybe even oxymoron to some. You think messianism as a religious idea, but there are many secular menias, excuse me, secular messianists. Those who believe there will be a sweeping radical change in history towards a utopia, ultimately. Like Hegel, 
Marx believed deeply in the betterment of the world through leaps in human progress. However, while for Hegel, these revolutions were of a dialectical nature, right, to opposing ideas that clash and a new progress emerges, through which history achieves its resolution in the modern capitalist liberal nation state, Marx, however, believed that history would further progress through the actions of humans. For this reason, his notion of progress relied on violence and revolution. Right? Marx is, I mean, pro-violence sounds a little harsh, but certainly a supporter of violence as part of a revolutionary method. Progress for Marx is not abstract. It's not just about some abstract notion of freedom or equality, but at its core about the material economic benefits being delivered equally to all people. Right? That's what progress is. Poor people have more stuff. By transferring Hegel's ideas of progress from idealism to materialism, right? Marx is a materialist, not in the way we talk about materials today, like, oh, I want to buy an, a, a fifth house and a, and a third boat, right? Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm really just into my stuff in my life. Um, but a philosophical materialism, right? It, it's not abstract. It's in, the, it's in the raw. Marx and Engels founded what's called historical materialism. Here's how uh, Britannica explains historical uh, materialism. The theory postulates that all institutions of human society, like government and religion, are the outgrowth of its economic activity. Consequently, social and political change occur when those institutions cease to reflect the mode of production, that is how the economy functions. So for Marx, the change needed to overturn a capitalist modes of production could not happen on a small scale. Voluntarily joining a kibbutz would not be enough to enable liberation. It's not just that I need to reject capitalism and go join a socialist farm. The system of the whole world needed to be overturned. This is a global revolution. Marx believed human nature was deeply tied to human labor and its relationship to human actualization. He explored these ideas in his 1867 work, Das Kapital. For Marx, a person's work is how they transform the world. Many people think, oh, I work, that's my job. Then in my spare time, I'll go, you know, transform the world by volunteering. Uh-uh. Labor is the primary mechanism to transform the world for Marx. According to the Israeli scholar Shlomo Avineri, man, to Marx, is not homo sapiens but primarily homo faber, the creative being who has a unique dialectical relationship to nature and to the objective world, which both sustains him and is also formed by his labor and his activity. Thus, human activity constantly changes both nature and man himself, right? That we are changing our nature through our labor, through our creative enterprise. Now, why do I quote Shlomo Avineri? Seems random, some Israeli uh, philosopher, because there's a great Jewish Lives series. If you've never looked into it, there's a, a series out of Yale called Jewish Lives, where they have funded scholars to pick one person and write kind of a masterpiece on them historically and philosophically. They've done everyone from Moses and Abraham to uh, great, you know, thinkers in modernity, and it's a it's a series very much worth looking at. If you look at it, I'm sure you'll find at least a dozen. Uh, you know, books you'd want to buy there if you have the funds and time to do that. Um, 
So capitalism then was deeply problematic to Marx as it forced laborers to give up ownership and control of their work in exchange for money. People worked not for themselves, but for the system and its owners. What do we, as students of the broader Jewish philosophical, moral, ethical, and religious traditions, so think of Marx and these ideas? First, we must consider whether we, like Marx, view the world as a struggle between classes. On the whole, the Torah does not divide Jewish society between the rich and the poor, but it is deeply concerned that the rich and powerful not use their money to pervert justice and oppress those who are vulnerable. Furthermore, the Torah contains a deep concern about kingship and the ways in which a king's wealth and power can lead to taking advantage of the poor. By the way, for Marx, class conflicts hides behind ideology. Many of the early religious Zionists were essentially socialists and even Marxists who saw the Torah as reflecting Marx's concerns and aspirations, right? So um, secular Jews, but also religious Jews who um, in a sense were inspired by this, by, by this ethos. So that being said, Judaism, we will see, while it shares certain ideals with Marxism, one might say, it is certainly not the case that it aligns fully with it and rejects major components of it. At the same time, might Marx's insights on equality line up with the Jewish approach to justice? Marx in his work, Critique of the Gotha Program, popularized the phrase, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. In the abstract, how different is that really from the Torah's teachings? In the book of Exodus, Moshe says, regarding the construction of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and its accoutrements, and let all among you who are skilled come and make all that the world has, make all that the Lord has commanded. The Torah goes on to explain in Exodus 35, and all the skilled women spun with their own hands and brought what they had spun in blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and in fine linen. And all the women who excelled in the skill spun the goat's hair. In essence, the Torah is saying, from each according to their ability. So too, the Torah almost also, tell, almost also tells us to each according to their needs. We're taught in Leviticus, you shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the, I, the Lord, am your God. Further, in the book of Deuteronomy, God commands the forgiveness of debts every seven years and immediately adds, there shall be no needy among you, from Deuteronomy 15.4. In more contemporary terms, Rabbi Dr. Gitz Greenberg derived from the Talmud three ethical values related to the equality of all human beings, that all human beings are created Elohim, in the image of God, and what that means, as he unpacks this based on the Gemara, is number one, each person has infinite value. Number two, each, per, each person is equal, and each person is unique. Number two and three appear to clash. If everyone's equal, then we're kind of the same, right? But everyone is unique, even though they're equal. Jewish thought in line with Marx holds the tension between the equal value of all people and the differing abilities and needs of all people. This is illustrated well by an anecdote in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin. As a person stamps several coins with one seal, and they are all similar to each other, 
But the Holy One, be blessed, stamps all people with the seal of Adam, the first person, and not, not one of them is similar to another. So that's kind of an interesting take that when we make stamps, we want to make everyone the same. Um, that, that, that's how we can produce a million coins. You make, you make a machine and it makes every coin the same, right? Every quarter isn't different. Um, but God produces humans that all emerge from the same human with that same infinite dignity, that same equality and likeness, the likeness of all people. And yet each one is um, miraculously formed, different and unique. That's part of the rejection of the Tower of Babel story. In the Tower of Babel, oh, everyone wants unity, right? Let's build this tower together up to the skies. God says, uh-uh, don't want unity. Don't want sameness. I want 70 people. I want 70 languages. I want diversity. Only a unity that contains diversity has value, where there's still a dignity of difference. And so both the Torah and Marx espouse equality without uniformity. The difference comes in that while to Marx, freedom comes from ownership of one's labor, one's own labor, I own what I produce, in Judaism, the highest form of freedom comes from accepting the obligations and responsibilities of the good. Um, right? So for Marx, freedom is, in a sense, an entitlement. I'm entitled to own what I make. Um, but for Judaism, largely, freedom emerges from accepting responsibilities upon myself. As such, Judaism doesn't map neatly onto the modern ideas of capitalism or communism. It, uh, many people try to say capitalism is, emerges from Judaism or communism emerges from Judaism. But largely, those modern innovations would be distortions of the richness of the Jewish tradition. Certainly, the Torah ensures the protection of private property. It would reject Marx in that regard. I mean, uh, that, that an owner loses the rights to what they own because they've hired a worker. And there's nothing un-Jewish about the ability of people to go out and make what they want of their own lives. Yet a contemporary person might scream communism at the Torah's call for a collective responsibility to make sure everyone has their needs met and nobody can be commodified or objectified. One might even call the institution of Shabbat an instance of a class conflict being won by the workers, right? That the, that the, the, um, that the Torah now says, power to the workers. They get a day off work. And the, the, the broader world doesn't say that. Workers are here to, you know, work all the time. We should note the famous quote of Marx that religion is the opiate of the masses. That makes him incompatible with Judaism, right? Well, we first need to look closer at the context of what Marx said. He wrote in his critique of Hegel's philosophy of, of right, religious suffering is at the same time the expression of a real suffering and also the protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of a spiritless condition. It is the opium of the people. So while Marx was no follower of, of religion, he saw it as a response to a deep hole that he entirely believed needed to be filled. His response to religiosity was not pity, but empathy. Religion, he thought, was in fact a protest against the very same things he was protesting. According to the scholar Isaiah Berlin, 
Marx's affinity for the working class was actually an outgrowth of his Jewish roots. Berlin wrote, it is the oppression of centuries of a people of pariahs, not of a recently risen class that is speaking in him. Now, to be sure, Marx did not have a Jewish education. Um, the argument is that the Jewish ethos for centuries before him, even though his parents had converted to Christianity, is kind of passed down through him, right? As, as mentioned, his grandfather was a rabbi, um, traditional rabbi, I mean, which is the only kind at the time. Um, and so um, that that ethos is passed down through him, the prophetic teachings of, of justice for the oppressed. Still, we cannot talk about communism and Judaism without addressing how badly it turned out in practice, particularly for Soviet Jews, but countless others as well. In the 20th century, we witnessed how ultimately communism was a false empowerment that ended up oppressing the poor. Such a noble idea that seemed to empower the poor ultimately oppressed the poor. If you look at Russia and you look at China and other, other cases. At the time, many under communism did feel their basic needs were being met. When I visited Ukraine in 2003 and, and other times, I met Jews who, after the fall of the Soviet Union, still longed for the return of communism. However, it's undeniable that communism gave way too much, way too much power to governments to limit, limit freedoms, including the right to be outwardly Jewish, right? Rejecting religion and, 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 and diversity. Communism, in its later manifestations, wanted uniformity and preach that your allegiance must not be to God, but to the state. The state replaces God. Judaism is paradoxical in that there is an emphasis on the human need to exist in a collective. We pray in a minion, study with a partner, and exist as a people, while the individual, especially today, retains the freedom to go about fulfilling their obligations in whatever way they see fit. So friends, to conclude, although I'm excited to open up this conversation, at the end of the day, it, it is perhaps best to understand Marx's goals in light of the Torah's vision of messianic redemption. However, where Jews traditionally recognize that such a future would depend at least in part on God, Marx believed humans had the capability to make it possible in the here and now. And at the very least, Marx believed in a version of what Jews might call tikkun olam, repairing the world. And Marx wouldn't disagree with us in our belief that the repair of the world is dependent on human action. Where we might disagree is on the method of action necessary. And the entire unfolding of the Jewish tradition has been about determining what specifically our actions in the world need to be. Okay, friends, we've opened up many, many deep issues about the nature of religion, about our views of the economy, the roles of human responsibility, what, how human freedom is, is, is achieved. And I would love to hear questions and reflections that you have. Hi, Eileen. Hi. Um, I was surprised to hear that Mark's family um, renounced Judaism because everything I've heard and thought all these years was that Marx was a Jew. Well, um, as, as, as you know, um, a Jew who renounces Judaism or even converts out um, remains a Jew, um, according to the tradition. If you're a Christian, you say, I'm no longer Christian. I don't believe Jesus Christ is my redeemer and I reject the, the dogmas and doctrines of, of Christianity. You might hold on to some cultural Christianity, but you're no longer a Christian. You've left Christianity. 
for Judaism, if you're born a Jew, it doesn't matter what you believe, you're still a Jew. So Marx was a Jew, um, um, but it's also true that he wasn't raised as one. So, uh, and I'm also, I'm going to share just, uh, I'm going to share in the side a little article I wrote, feels like a decade ago, but it was only last year. <laughs> um, I wrote this last June of 2022 um, um, that actually explores a little bit of that. Let me just see if I can read um, that one part that I wrote here. Marx was born in 1818 to Jewish parents who assimilated fully into Christian Germany. He lived much of his life elsewhere in Paris, Brussels, and London. Okay, I guess that's as far as, far as I went with that. But yeah, Eileen, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, it seems to me that um, anti-Semites use the fact that Marx was Jewish to ah. point out all of his negative factors. Ah. I, I never hear that in relationship to, well, this was good. <laughs> that just doesn't exist. Uh-huh. Also happens to be that many accuse Marx of being an anti-Semite. Um, Marx had um, had some very problematic stands towards the Jews and towards the Jewish community. There is a counter argument where he does, in fact, uh, defend Jews as well. Um, and so it is kind of a very rich story, his relationship there, um, and uh, and what he sees happening. So yeah, so I won't get too much into that. But it is very true that those who want to demonstrate um, that Jews have disproportionate power and have perverted the moral the morals of society have both sides to point to. They have someone like Ayn Rand to point to as uh, as evil capitalists, and they have someone like uh, uh, Marx to point to as evil founders of communism. Um, you know. And hi, Cheryl. You want to jump in, Cheryl? Okay. Um, hi. Um, just a couple comments. You, you talked. You talked about um, the class, the class differentiation about how uh, in Judaism and in Marxism, the there, you know, it's uniformity that it was uh, without uniformity, equality without uniformity. You said, but then I keep thinking, especially if I, I got this idea just from the one slide that you showed about the. Um, Mishkan being built, you know, and who was allowed in? I mean, there is a there's a definite class structure there. There's the Kohanim, there's the Le Levites, and there's everybody else. And so, you know, that was just one thing that I noticed that was kind of different from what I thought I was hearing about the, the about the different, you know, the similarities. The other thing that you just said at the very end about when when people um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, some of them were yearning for the return to communism. And that was just reminiscent of the, the Hebrews in the desert yearning for, for the return to Egypt because there they had everything they felt they needed, even though they were slaves, they still had the, the things that they needed. So... You know, it just that that kind of reminded me of that. That once you you when leaving something and changing what you have, um, maybe what we see or from the outside see as being an improvement in your life is really, you know, it's the human condition that makes you kind of yearn for what you're familiar with. Yes, love that, Cheryl. Thank you. Yeah, as I said, that was my experience in Ukraine in the former Soviet Union, that people said, freedom is great, but I just want my daily food. 
Mm-hmm. That's exactly the case with Egypt too. Like now we're in the desert. You freed us from Pharaoh, but they gave us fish every day. I want my fish, right? And so freedom sounds great to those with a lot of privilege, but the most urgent need of those with you know without that same privilege is to be fed and have their basic needs met. And freedom is something that might you know come later for most. And so, yeah, I really appreciate that point. And on your first point, you know, it's a great it's a great direction to think about for a moment, because the class, if you call it a class, class structure in Judaism that Cheryl's pointing to is not, is, in a sense, not an economic one, and in a sense, is. If you look at Co- Cohen, Levi, Yisrael, right, th- those different three different groups as they're identified, the Cohen and Levi. The, the, the Levites and the, and the what do you call them? How do you say it in English? I, I call them Kohanim, but Kohanites? How do you say it in English? Priests. Priests, the priests. <laughs> yeah, thanks, the priests. Or, or, or any Dr. Cohen you've ever had, <laughs> who's probably a Cohen. <laughs> um, that they're actually um, underprivileged economically. They, these people don't own land. All the tribes have land, but the Cohen and the Levi, the priests don't own land. And they are dependent on food charity from the from the rest. The people bring their people think of animal sacrifices just like offering up an animal to God, but most of it's not that. Most of it is bringing food to Jerusalem for the priests and the Levites, who are dependent upon that because they don't own really land or property. It, it, in a sense, it's similar to some of the um, the Buddhist monks in the Far East who are beggars. They're they're beggars. They if you've been there, when I lived in Thailand um, uh, for a few months uh, and went there a number of times in service projects, um, what we would see is that the monks would um, engage in their pious practices, and then they would walk down the road holding their bowl, waiting for the community to support them. And we don't have the priests, the Cohen, do that or the Levites, but um, but people come to them. Um but anyways, it is kind of similar. And but if you look at the Indian caste system, the Indian caste system is is uh, much more different. If you look at Hawaii, interesting. I mean, we think of Hawaii as another country, even though, it's, of course, it's a state that was colonized in the 20s and brought into a state. But if you look at Hawaii, um, there's many different classes there. You have the indigenous, then you have the the, the those from the Philippines who came. The Chinese who came, the Japanese who came. The Japanese are on the highest realm there. Uh, below, there's the Chinese, the, there's the, Fil- the Filipino workers, uh, various Asian groups that were kind of below other Asian groups over there, and the indigenous on the bottom, and then the white, uh, you know, the white colonists, you know, over there on top. And um, there continues to be an, an indigenous struggle there, right there in America, um, as we see in many other countries as well. In any case, um, Marx was not engaging in race, you know, some of the race conversations we look at today as it emerges. Uh, When we get to Kwame Apia, we're going to see a little bit about how Apia also wants us to move away from seeing the the world primarily, primarily through racial lenses, but wants to see how multiple people are. They're not merely their race. There's gender, sexual orientations, there's economic factors, we're multiple things. And but Marx wants to reduce people to uh, not race, but to their economic situation, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender. He's not a feminist. He's not an anti-racist. He is purely seeing this through uh, finances, regardless of, of 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 where you're emerging from. So, OK, um, Gary uh, Friedlander, over to you. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Gary. Um, 
Good morning, everyone. Hopefully, can you hear me? Yes, great. Yes, good. Uh, I just wanted to bring up uh, two points. One is what Cheryl mentioned about uh, slavery in the desert uh, when the Israelites were released, give me, give me the food, I want to go back. Uh, I was active in the Russian, uh, when the Russians uh, came, started coming to the United States and we sponsored several as well as the you know Jewish community. And uh, yes, they all wanted to, uh, a lot of them didn't want to go to work. They, you know, why can't the government feed me? Uh, but it took quite a while. And now we're into a second or third generation of Russian immigrants that have are now have grown up, have grown up here. And they would not want to go back to communist Russia. Uh, so sometimes uh, it's that same analogy is it took a uh, uh, Moses uh, uh, led them for 40 years so they could get out of that mentality of, of not fending for themselves and being independent or capitalist, whatever you, you want to call them. So I thought that that was interesting. Uh, but I want to go back to the survey that you that you posted. Uh, what, what what I was interested in, and having been self-employed even as a physician, uh, I had workers. Uh, I realized that I may own the business, but without my workers, uh, there is no business. And uh, uh, so, I mean, that mentality during the Industrial Revolution was was big. Uh, and then we started realizing as a nation uh, that, excuse me, we, 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 without the workers, we were nothing as, as business owners or as uh, industrialists. And which led to the, un, you know, the, uh, the poor treatment of workers, which ultimately led to what we see, saw the evolution of, of unions uh fighting for rights uh and now we even see companies that make their workers uh, part owners of their company so that that it's a, a mutual arrangement between owners and workers because the, the the dynamics have shifted from oh you're just a worker to without you you're uh uh are our company is not as valued as 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 we think it is so that was uh that was just my comment on that i just Want to throw that in there? <laughs> yeah, Gary. Thanks for all that. That's really interesting stuff. And um, yeah, some of those evolutions as they emerge, and us thinking about my gosh. I mean, really, one of, one of the great Torah's insights is the rights of private property. If I own stuff, don't take it from me. I'm the owner. I get to choose if you work for me or not, right? You um, and if you try to take my stuff, it's stealing. Just because I hire you to work doesn't make you the owner of my stuff, right? And so um, private property is, is very serious. And yet we see that boundaries on that issue are, are more porous in a sense. And what are the workers' claims, uh, you know, in that regard? Um, you know, Amartya Sen had a, 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 a nice case. I, I may have shared it before, I'm not sure. That helps you kind of realize where you fall on, on the spectrum. He says, in a village, they find a flute. Have you heard this? In a village, they find a flute and three different... Uh, children make a claim to the flute. The first child says, I made the flute. It's my flute. Give me the flute. The second kid says, I'm the only kid who will never be able to afford a flute in the village. So I, I you know, I should have the right to the flute. And the third child says, I'm the only one who can play the flute be uh, beautifully for the community. So one who takes a virtue approach says, oh, the one who can play beautifully should do it because that's going to bring the most good for all. Right. And we care about the most good for all. Let the one who can play it best have it. The one who's a capitalist says, or you know, defends private property, well, give it to the one who owns it. They made it. It's theirs. Give it back to them. And the communist says, 
right? The one who's never going to be able to afford it. Let them have it. It doesn't matter that they didn't make it or they didn't fund it. All right. They're never going to have the chance. And so if you're, it's interesting that if you push yourself to think which of those three you'd pick, um, where, where you'd ultimately land. And so, um, anyways, yes. Yeah. Thanks Cheryl for that point about stock options today and what that looks like today. You know, I'm sure we have a range of views as, as it relates to unions. Um, and to be sure unions today are very different than unions back in the day. Um, but are unions fundamentally good? I'm sure some people here think that. Are unions fundamentally corrupt? I'm sure some people think that. And is there a middle ground? Oh, you know, unions are sometimes necessary to, you know, to have collective bargaining power for the rights of workers and sometimes distort that and ask for too much and, and are bullies and whatever the case is. And so whatever, wherever we land, that's kind of part of the conversation as well. Okay. Um, thank you, Gary. Over to you, Aglaia. Hi. Um, so my question, I'm just going to try to do it the fast way is, um, well, one, first of all, I don't care if I'm called a Marxist because here's the thing, I've been called worse than that. But the other thing, though, is that um, anything with an... Worse than a Marxist? You can get worse than a... <laughs> you can. Anyway, um, be... Um, Anything with an ism behind it, though, um, I find as a historian, though, anything with an ism behind it is not going to work out the way in, it's going to work fine on paper. But in real life, it's just not going to work out that way. And so, you know, discussions about, well, is capitalism any more realistic than communism? You know, the like capitalist says, oh, well, com competition makes you bring your best to the table. Well, how many times have you gotten a product that was not actually you bought it, but it was not really that great? because in a capitalist system, you have to put the profits first, not, you know, bringing the best. And so, and also with people saying, well, communism is unrealistic because people are just, you know, going to be too selfish and they don't want to pay taxes. But then I just bring up also, well, feudalism, no one wants to live in a feudalist system anymore either. I mean, it just became obsolete. So I find myself kind of wondering, um, I'm the eccentric person who put the God as the owner of the, you know, so... I'm I'm the eccentric person who did that though. So I'm kind of wondering, are we actually even talking about things that are actually real, realistic? Or are they just all illusions? Now, I used to sound like a Marxist and say, you know, opiate of the masses about religion and stuff like that though, but I was never completely Marxist. But, you know, I don't know. I'm just kind of like not convinced by anything. So I don't know. Okay, awesome, awesome. So, okay, good. So many great points here that I hope others will engage with as well. Let me first just clarify the opiate piece because I kind of ran through that part quickly. Um, so just to sum it up, the way most people quote it for Marx is to say religion is, is empty and valueless. It's just making people feel good. Uh, you know, the ignorant masses need some way to feel good. And so they, they cling to religion. And many people understand Marx the way. But what he was saying over there, as I understand it, and I, and I gave the quote, is that People are suffering, and there's two things you can do with suffering. Well, there's many things you can do, but but the two two productive things, perhaps. One is relieve your suffering um, by trying to feel better about it, and that's what he sees religion as doing. It provides a way to um, comfort us around that suffering. What he so he understands that as having value. What he sees as more productive is go out and be a revolutionary and, and uproot that suffering, uproot that oppression. So he thinks religion is at worst a distraction from what we really should be doing and, and, and revolting, but at best, a real human response to the suffering that's real and that people are seeking comfort from that. From that. Um, 
And uh, yeah, thanks, Aglaya. Yeah, and I think that gentle with people who look for religion for comfort because we all need comfort. And I don't think that that is a bad thing that people want to pray in a group because they're struggling. They want to pray in a group because they're mourning. They want to pray because they're lost. Um, you know, and, um, you know, religion being a space for people who are suffering feels productive. Now, where Judaism goes further and says, okay, well, that's not enough. We have to roll up our sleeves and go help people, right? Um, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a, in slightly in a Marx, <laughs> in a Marx direction. Um, but, um, but, uh, but he, uh, so again, I think that's a really important nuance in terms of what's happening there. And, you know, what they say in clergy school, you've heard this before, is the role of the clergy is to um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. Right. And that's, you know, and so, yeah, there are the afflicted and the religion should be there to comfort them. Like people struggling. We don't need to go challenge them to be activists like they're mourning. They're, they're sick. Let's just comfort them. And there's people who are totally comfortable. And the role of religion is to afflict them, to challenge them, to do more, right, to be helpers. And so, um, yeah, thank you for that. In terms of the point of God as the owner of stuff, that idea also resonates for me in an era of the hubris of human ownership, where people who have just far more than they, they ever could need and believe they're fully entitled to all they have, because it's all because of their hard work, that, that strikes me as one of the great perversions of human values in our day, that people can be massive billionaires and truly not feel that they're responsible for the welfare of others, feel that it's because of their hard work that they're billionaires, solely because of their hard work. And it doesn't have to be billionaires. There's many tiers below that as well. And the notion of God as owner, I think, is it, you know inspires the humility to say that, my gosh, so much of the fortune in my life is not because of me. It's because of my parents, it's because of my ancestors, it's because of society, it's because of my partners and, and, and the people I work with. So much of my fortune is not because of me. And that's, that's something we might call God. Something way beyond me has enabled me to have so much of what I have, whatever we want to call that. And so that also speaks to me and uh, in a spiritual sense and in political sense, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm also in the side that the owner owns what is produced more than the worker does even though um, I think there's certainly a middle ground there. <laughs> um, now, just one last point before I open it up again, um, which is your point around uh, profits. And, you know, uh, we owe this uh, to Milton Friedman, who um, really pushed the American ethos towards the sense that if you're a board, if you're on the board of a company, you have one and one responsibility to maximize the profits of that company. That is what you are responsible for as a board member. Thankfully, that has started to shift a little bit um, slowly and not fast enough that board members of corporations understand that there are many stakeholders and there is an ethic of social responsibility that comes with being a stakeholder as well and being a board member that maximizing profits is only one of many goals that comes with the responsibilities of a corporation in addition to caring for workers, caring for the consumer, um, ensuring um, some social responsibility in in production, and um, and hopefully I can continue to move in that direction. Now we're now in in what might people some people might view positively or some view as a mess, where companies are weighing in deeply on political issues. Um, they can't escape it. Um, the far right won't shop at companies that 
now offer trans clothes or um, or offer Black Lives Matter, you know, um, items or LGBT stuff. And, you know, the left won't stop at places that, you know, um, think of like Hobby Lobby places that that think that they have the freedom to discriminate. Um, they don't have to, you know, make cakes or or serve the LGBT community or, you know, um, you know, have engaged in a, you know, pro-Trump uh, idea. And so companies have been have been politicized in recent years as part of this move towards companies goals, not only being about maximizing profits, but also taking social stance. If you look at Georgia, in Georgia, um, a lot happened in the last you know few years around um, the elections um, and freedom of elections and how companies weighed in or didn't weigh in on that. So wow, lots more to say there. But but this whole capitalist ethos is shifting in recent years in this regard. Okay, who have we not heard from yet? Oh, and actually, let me go to Steve because he wrote in the chat before we get to everyone else here. What, what is this about buying beer? I need to catch up on the on the chat over there. Uh, <laughs> right. I see now. I see what's just going on over there. Yes. Okay. So let me get to both of Steve's points over there. Um, first, he writes, "A capitalist is not a revolutionary, but an evolutionary. He or she sees the diminishing value of a product and tries to enhance and or create something better. Even then, the capitalist can lose if there's no demand." Right. So yeah, I think that just as we have, many of us may have critiques of capitalism. Um, it is hard to deny the great benefits that capitalists has also brought to the world in terms of innovation um, and uh, creating things that people need as, a, as opposed to just the communist system that tells the people what they need. Capitalist system kind of evolves to that. And, um, and there's a reason that um, so many people have a benefit in America and human rights have benefited around the world because of, of of that ethos, even though there's a dark side to that as well. So yeah, thank you for that. And um, that 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 is a crucial point here. And how capitalism is also tied to freedom, that people can go out and start their own enterprises. They have the rights to do that, to build their own capital, launch an enterprise on their own, and their freedom to, to build that, rather than just be part of the worker class for the state. Um, that the state takes a you know a laissez-faire approach. And that's one of the great American political debates is how involved should the government be in, re in, in, in uh, regulation versus being hands off. And um, of course, Democrats and Republicans are both capitalists in this country, by and large. There's fringes on both sides of kind of a fringe libertarian side and a fringe kind of anti-capitalist side. But by and large, both are capitalists. So going to Steve's earlier point around Yitz Greenberg saying everyone is equal, does that mean he, everyone has attributes and deficiencies? Um, yeah, what a fascinating point, Steve. And um, that equality primarily, um, you know, in Jewish sense means we have an equal light and equal dignity. And in a Marxist sense means we have an equal claim, um, I think, um, an equal claim ultimately to uh, two things, um, uh, equal rights. And your points around everyone has attributes and deficiencies um, is a great kind of add on to that. Uh, that what makes us equal, you might say, is our core humanity. All of us has positive attributes and virtues. All of us has deep deficiencies and and vices. And um, and for us to see that commonality, that's one of the great things about about Yom Kippur is that we all stand guilty. You know, we all stand to confess, understanding that none of us is perfect. As as King David says in the Psalms, that 
there's no there's nobody who hasn't sinned. There's no one who's not complicit in the wrongs of our world. In fact, the most dangerous people in the world are people who think they haven't. Um, and so, yeah. So, thank you for that. That, that that's a fascinating take, Steve, on what it means uh, to see our to see our fundamental equality. Hi, Arnie. Hi. What is the basis for Marx saying that all property is theft? Um, private property, right? Um, yes, private property. My short answer is I don't know. Um, I, I would need to read another thousand pages to kind of refresh my memory. <laughs> my my longer answer, essentially, that there needs to be this equal distribution. And once I claim beyond that equal distribution of resources and of private property, I am stealing that from others who have a claim to it. I can't say, hey, I worked harder and or I inherited money. And so this stuff is mine. Um, I built this business with my bare hands. Um, I, I, I built this farm and I built capital and I expanded it. Right. Um, that fundamentally. Um, there needs to be this carved out equal distribution. And if I claim more than that allotment, um, then I've, I've stolen that from others who have a claim to it because resources are finite. And I get that finite piece and not more. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to you know challenge me on that or, or has thought about it differently. Um, Aglae, I, I, I know you've read some marks as well. So if, you're not, you know, if you think about that differently or anyone else here. But Arnie, so but but just before that, Arnie, uh, what do you think of that? Like, do you agree with that? Disagree with that? Like, what's your take on that, on that, on that idea? Uh, I I don't know. I know that I have a, a someone I know here from uh, Cuba, and she said, you know, when someone wears glasses, the glasses are the property of the state in a communist system. Right, right. And mm -hmm. so I get my one pair, and if somehow I get a second pair, I'm robbing someone else of that, right? It's such a it's such a different way of us of us. Uh, yeah, Glaya, you want to weigh in on that? Okay, um, just quickly. Um, I kind of think also um, just to throw this out there: not all societies actually developed in this way. I mean, not to quote Rousseau again, my love hate with Rousseau, but not all societies developed in a way that someone put a fence around the land, piece of land, and convinced everybody that it was his. A lot of societies didn't. So the idea that um, you can own something that's like, for instance, sacred like land is a kind of theft also. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways you could take this. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, so it is, uh, it is worth thinking about um, who, who fundamentally owns land. I mean, again, we've already talked about the spiritual approach of God owning it, but then you can talk about, well, I mean, we're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we're not even going there. Who 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 owns the land? The one who was there four thousand years ago, the one who was there a hundred years ago, the one who's there today, the one who wins the war, who owns that land? Right. In, in what sense, where I'm sitting in Arizona right now, is this tribal land versus the owner of this building, a guy who lives in LA that we're renting this office space? Does that guy own it? Does the state of Arizona own it? Is the do, do, do Native Americans own it? Right. Is there is there a group before Native Americans we don't even know of who lost to the Native Americans and they own it? Right. So who actually owns anything? And so th these are profound questions that aren't simple and are um, are sometimes even painful. Um, and so uh, or not sometimes very frequently painful. And then you look at things like inheritance and the government takes a cut sometimes of, of larger inheritance. Children have have fought fight very consistently around inheritance who 
when somebody dies, right? When they can't make a claim to their own stuff anymore, who owns that? I mean, we've decided that the children kind of do or whoever they write in their will does, but why is that? And, and why does the government take a cut of that? And, uh, and how does the person even have a, a legal you know, power to distribute wealth when they're no longer alive? By the way, just tangentially, um, Israel was founded with a socialist ethos, um, but really significant changes over the last few decades, last, last decade in particular, um, that Israel's number two to a capitalist innovation society um, and most certainly has embraced a fully a, a capitalist uh, uh, leaning. That's that, that early socialist ethos is still alive in some sense. I mean, we heard in this atrocious attack it was a kibbutz where people were slaughtered. I mean, there's still kibbutzim out there and there still are socialists there, but they lost. I mean, the labor movement is dead in Israel. Um, the uh, right won, and the right is not just uh, the hawkish right on on, uh, on on political issues, but also an economic right as well. Although Israel is not simple. In America, we have the left and the right and everything kind of is simple. Because you're on the right uh, mil uh, militaristically does not mean economically you're, you're on the right. It's It's more complicated. Okay, um, just to like say about the Enclosure Act, um, the idea that I'm thinking of is that the British went into, like, I'm just going to use Ireland as my example, though, but they would take lands that were held in common for years and then put a fence around it and then give it to one of their, you know, like lords and ladies, mostly lords, but anyway, though, and say, oh, by the way, all you Irish people who are on this land, not only are you inferior, but forget you. I don't care. You had this land for a long time, though, but now it's not yours. And if you don't agree to all of the things that we tell you, um, too bad. And so I don't know. Karl Marx was not exactly the biggest fan of, you know, the British system, just to throw that out there also. So, I mean, mm. yeah. So we're not talking. I mean, that's just, a you know, throw out a point also. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, Aglaia, do, do you generally have a positive or negative orientation towards towards Marx? Um, kind of, um, kind of love hate also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Yeah. it's kind of love hate also. <laughs> right. Yeah, great, great. Okay, good. Well, that is um, that is our our point here um, of what we're doing together is to take the good from so many systems of thought from so many thinkers and reject the negative. And as you said so powerfully earlier, Aglaia, um, what happens when we embrace isms, when we worship isms? So many people are ideologues that worship communism or capitalism. And I would even say Judaism, because some people worship a religion rather than what the religion is pointing us towards. They think that the religion is the end itself as opposed to a means to a greater enlightenment. Um, and I think that that's a problem as well. Or even Israelism, right? Whenever you make anything into an ism, an ideology that is the end of what you worship, that creates a great, a great danger. Um, friends, next week we're going to move towards William James. Um, William James is a fascinating figure, a very different approach of types of issues than we're looking at today, regards to phenomenology and regards to experience. And... Um, I just want to offer our continued uh, strength um, um, at this difficult time and solidarity and our prayers for success and for strength and for peace um, and uh, togetherness. And um, hope everyone can be gentle with themselves and with everyone else. 
and not be glued to the news all the time, but um, find find healthy outlets to uh, continue to be joyful in the world while we hold the darkness along with the light. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Hope to see you soon.